0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: What kind of music does a chiropractor listen to? Hip-pop. Hip-pop. Is it getting better?
0: I'm Rico
2: Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nunam, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties.
0: You just got a joke from comic Annabelle Gerwich. That'll help break the ice. We'll speak with her later about her new book. Plus, we chat with musician Stephen Malkmus about his old band, Pavement, and his new band, The Jicks. Also coming up, the Oscar nominated film that changed a country What Wine
2: Pairs Best with Donuts, and a history of the first phone book.
0: I'm sorry, the the phone... Book. It's the thing that comes in the mail and you recycle it. Oh. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk.
2: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Facebook announced it's going to buy the mobile messaging
0: app WhatsApp for $19 billion.
1: This is the worst violence in Ukraine since the Soviet Union.
0: American Lauren Williams became just the fifth person to win medals at both the Summer and Winter Olympics.
2: Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is a columnist for VanityFair.com. Richard, Thanks for joining us. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
3: I'm going to be talking about a troubling American clown shortage. This is a truth. This <laughs> really? is a real thing that's happening. If clowns are troubling enough. Well, okay, sure. They they might haunt your dreams in, in vast numbers. <laughs> yes. but. They might. They do, but in in reality, they are actually um, this. New York Daily News ran a story um, that a lot of the trade guilds for for clowns mm-hmm. have like huge drops in in membership over the past roughly a decade or so. There are oh. trade guilds for clowns, oh, yeah. and yeah. and there aren't. It's not just one. I mean, there are several. There's one called New York Clown Alley. Which mm. sounds like a really scary street, but it's actually. <laughs> so what's happened? Yeah. Have we offshored our clown jobs? Yeah, well, because
2: Cirque du Soleil is Canadian. That's there true.
3: Yeah, maybe notions of clowning have changed, but also just it's an age thing. And someone from the New York Clown Alley said, you know, talking about the kids these days, he said they're thinking about everything other than clowning. Oh Aww. my god! So these millennials. Yeah, exactly. Like the lazy, <laughs> shiftless millennials.
0: <laughs> uh, so
3: um,
2: does this affect mimes? Because I've heard they're, the silent majority of clowns. Oh,
0: Brendan. Maybe you should yeah. become a clown. <laughs> yeah, I think it's too late. I think it's happened.
3: But the, the good thing is is that not all is lost necessarily because clowning is still in certain places an an exclusive institution. At the Ringling Brothers Circus, for example, like something like 530 Clowns auditioned to be part of their new show, and huh. they only accepted twelve. Whoa! So
0: that—that's the problem. Make more jobs for these people, and maybe they'll go into the field. Does this
2: mean balloon animals are going extinct? Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's good material here all
0: week, folks. Take it to the circus. are all week. Richard Lawson, thanks for bearing with us. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Now let's all pile into this tiny car and go get cocktails. <laughs>
0: Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a brow, but instead of beads of sweat, it has beads of booze. Hmm, need a bandana. You can then squeeze (laughs) into a glass. First, the history part. This week, back in 1878, a new kind of book was published. Though it didn't quite start out as a book. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: Today in the US, there are hundreds of millions of phone lines. Back in 1878, there were 50. They were all in New Haven, Connecticut, where the telephones inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, set up the first phone company. And that February, to let each customer know the other 49 folks they could call, Bell published the first phone directory. It was a single cardboard sheet, and it only listed names. All you had to do was pick up your phone, tell the operator who you wanted to talk to, and she'd connect you. That is, if there was an operator on duty. A note at the bottom of the directory explained, calls could only be placed from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. Still, business boomed. Enough so that by November, Bell had to issue a second directory. This one with almost 400 listings. 20 pages long, it was the first actual phone book. And with its separate business listings, it was also the first yellow pages. Only problem? All those new customers had never used a phone. So, in addition to listings, the phone book contained instructions. Like, for instance... Never take the telephone off the hook unless you wish to use it. When you're done talking, say, that is all. The book also advised customers to, quote, leave your lower lip and jaw free while speaking and that you'd have to get permission from the company to make more than two calls per hour. Today, of course, phone books are everywhere, though in the age of the internet, some argue they're unnecessary, not to mention a tad wasteful. In 2010 alone, Americans threw away 650,000 tons of phone books.
0: So that was the history. Now for the drink to go with it, I am speaking with John Gennetti. He is owner of the bar and restaurant 116 Crown in New Haven, Connecticut, birthplace of the phone book. John, what cocktail did that story inspire?
5: Uh, that inspired a tropical Tom Collins. Really? What, yeah.
0: What about a phone book screams tropical to you?
5: Well, I'm going to make it with all alcohols that have first and last names.
0: Oh, <laughs> with proper names, basically?
5: Yeah, the Tom Collins is going to be made with the names of others.
0: Like names in a phone book. That is great. Yes, I hope it's not too campy. No. Th- listen, have you ever listened to this show? There's no such thing as too campy. I had hoped. Okay. <laughs> so Tom Collins, obviously a proper name. What else is in this thing?
5: So we're going to make it with uh, a gin from a gentleman called Martin Miller's. So it's Martin Miller's London Dry Gin. All right. Uh, some lemon juice, which unfortunately I, I don't know the, the paternal uh, origins of. You're forgiven. Simple syrup. And to make it tropical, we're going to use some of John D. Taylor's Velvet Falernum.
0: Oh, falernum—that's a, a kind of uh, rum. It's
5: a it's a Barbados liqueur, so it's often mixed with rum. Okay, and then we're going to seal the deal with tiki bitters from the Bittermans.
0: There's no first name of the Bittermans. We don't know their first name. I
5: think there's two first names, but I, I could run up and grab the bottle, but I don't have it with me.
0: Quite all right. Yeah, although I'm a little sad that you didn't put all those in alphabetical order.
5: Oh, you know, I, there's always the one stitch in the rug that I missed.
0: But you've got so you've got all these things, and how do you put it together?
5: Uh, we would take all of the ingredients, shake it over ice. Strain it over fresh ice. Garnish it with a piece of orange and a cherry. Rinse and repeat, because this is going to be good.
0: Uh, Tasty. Although, to keep with the theme, you should never actually drink it and then just throw it in a recycling bin.
5: Yeah, (laughs) or we could, i got to fab something up so I can use it to sit on at the dinner table.
0: So, Brendan, remember back in the day when you would meet someone cool and afterwards they'd be like, look me up, I'm in the phone book. That doesn't happen. I don't
2: remember that, but I do remember when they'd be like, hey, look me up on Friendster. (laughs)
0: In fact, that just happened to me. Wow. Speaking of which, people, you can look (laughs) us up on Facebook. For now, for For, the time being. For now. We post our cocktail recipes there as well as on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've learned some history and about America's clown deficit, very important, But it's not quite a party till there's music playing. For
2: that, we turn to Isabella Manfredi and Gideon Benson, two members of rock band The Preachers. They'll be among the scores of acts descending upon the South by Southwest Festival in Austin in a couple of weeks. Here they are to suggest some tunes and perform one.
6: Hey, everybody. I'm Izzy.
2: And I'm Gideon.
6: And we're from The Preachers. We're an Australian band. We're going to play you guys some tracks. From
7: our dinner party soundtrack.
6: Yeah. Yeah. When I have people over for dinner, I like to put on something mellow when they come over. Like um, JJ Cale is one of my favourite, favourite, favourite people to listen to, especially when I'm cooking. It's
7: something that I guess people can switch off to and listen to, or you can talk amongst yourselves. Probably.
6: Yeah, my favourite JJ Cale track is this song called Lies. I see it in your eye. Lies. He's the guy that wrote Cocaine, like everyone knows that song. He was a big influence on Eric Clapton. I mean, he's a master of, you know, understated, beautiful, like, efficient guitar work. It's such a groovy song. I don't know if you guys say groovy. It's kind of lame to say groovy. Funky. It's such an angry song but he's so cool about it. That's the kind of man that he was. He wasn't really in it for the fame and the glory and all of that sort of stuff.
7: I don't know, like, I guess I'd say this dinner party, whatever it turns into. I'd kind of play maybe a little bit of Nick Drake.
6: Really? You want to send everybody
7: to sleep? No, it's not sending everyone to sleep. I think it's just something you can listen to while still chatting over you know like i don't think everyone's quite ready to just you know the couple in the room aren't quite ready to get up and have a little ballroom dance in the corner yet
3: saturday sun
7: came early one morning in the sky so clear Oh, I'd
6: probably kick off. I'd probably like after after that. Like I'd probably kick off with something like um, "Keys to Your Heart" by 101ers. 101ers was um, Joe Strummer's from the Clash. Joe Strummer from the Clash. One of his early bands. The song's called Keys to Your Heart. I think it was one of the first songs he pretty much ever wrote. Yeah. Um, And he sort of muscled his way into that band. Like, they just thought he was a bit of a a loser. He used to go to all the shows and just hang out. Piss off, Joe. Yeah. Get out of here. It's one of those songs where you kind of know what he's saying, but it's a little bit ambiguous. Part of why you like it is you don't completely know what he's
7: saying. Yeah.
6: And if people at their dinner parties want to play our track, we would probably suggest one of Gideon's. It's called Dark Times. The title suggests that it's a downer,
7: but it's not. It's about, you know, whatever happens, no-one's going to leave you. Everything's going to be OK kind of vibe. Even if they leave early, they're going to call tomorrow and say they had a lovely time. <laughs>
8: one, two, one, two,
7: three, four. Why don't you say you want me? Well, I guess I'll have to keep it in mind. I'm some much. I know you'll allow me who me this time. Piece by piece, it all unfolds. i iron, good stone. Losing sight, I'm losing control. I'm here bargaining with my own. You've got me Run running scared.
2: Dinner Party soundtrack from Isabella Manfredi and Gideon Benson of the band The Preachers. That's Creatures with the P. They recorded this tune live in our studios, and you can hear
0: two songs from that session at dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, we're going to take a short break. When we return, comedian and author Annabelle Gurwitch puts a the in Twitter, (laughs) and we learn when it's okay to put shrimp on donuts. Neither of those things are okay. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan
2: Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll chat with Stephen Malkmus about his new album,
0: Wig Out at Jagbags." The, the title is totally self-explanatory. Most of it. Correct. Plus, we'll speak with Joshua Oppenheimer about his Oscar-nominated documentary, The Act of Killing. But speaking of receiving moral instruction, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
2: Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is comedian, actor, and author Annabelle Gerwich. For six years she served you're laughing at your name.
1: Well, no, I know all the things they has to just in Los Angeles, everyone's a hyphen it.
2: That's right. Yeah. Like
1: uh, my son's pediatrician also plays in a band. Wow. Got, How's
2: your son's health?
1: Not that great. I actually used to go to a therapist who's also a rabbi.
2: <laughs> well, yes, hold I'm your sorry. hyphens. Okay. Let me finish let me finish getting through your humongous C V Yeah bio oh, Okay.
1: Uh-oh. before
2: my computer blinks and Wikipedia goes off. <laughs> For six years, Annabelle, you served up Grub and One Liners mm-hmm. as the host of the TBS series Dinner in a Movie. Mm-hmm. You're also a frequent commenter for NPR, and you've contributed articles to The Nation. Did you know and these things? Were you did aware? Did you know this about you?
1: I, I, you know, Wikipedia, it must be true. <laughs> well,
2: audience, you may have seen her act on TV shows like Seinfeld, Dexter, and Boston Legal. And next week, Annabelle's latest book comes out. It's called I See You Made an Effort compliments, indignities, and survival stories from the edge of 50. And Annabelle, welcome.
1: Yes. Thank you.
0: After all that.
1: Thank you. So this is
0: this is kind of a coming of middle age book, we would mm. like to call it. It's, a, it's, it's about you turning 50. In the first few pages, instead of saying 50 is the new 40... You Proclaim 50 is the New 50, which is very zen of you. That's hmm. right. What does that mean?
1: Well, I think that, uh, um, first of all, I just want to say, I didn't set out to write a book about turning 50. It was that I was writing this series of essays, and then I all realized they were all sort of age-related, that I was having a midlife crisis. You were a little obsessed with it. Yes. Well, I grew up in that generation. We had these Clairol commercials that said, you're not getting older, you're getting better. Mm-hmm. But that's uh-huh. not true. You are getting older. Wait, the
2: Clairol commercial? Lied?
1: They lied to <laughs> That's us. crazy. That explains my frizzy yes, hair. it's not true. No, I mean, you might be getting better, but you are also getting older. And I had this thought that, you know, we're in this sort of denial about this. And so it was the idea of sort of an empowerment, a sort of a battle cry of like, I'm 50.
2: You sound optimistic, Annabelle, and and the book, you know, is funny. Oh, I'm not
1: optimistic. Oh, no, it's terrible. It's (laughs) all terrible. (laughs) But but... there is some
2: sadness to it. At one point, Mm -hmm. you list the hierarchy of actors Um, in today's Hollywood, (laughs) and actress over 50 falls at the very bottom beneath former reality star Starbucks barista
1: right and i think sloth
2: how do you get around the ageism in hollywood
1: you don't i mean there is wow. this weird thing though there is in the culture there's usually like one old person that everybody loves like it used to be ruth gordon now it's like betty white you yeah. can only be one so you have to try to be <laughs> the wow. one also mm. when you turn 72 uh you don't have to take your shoes off when you fly you know, oh, when the you go airport, through security. security right? no, That's you, true. Yeah, so these are things that you start to look forward to when you're 15. But it was all these, you know, funny sort of stories. I mean, I hope funny stories about these moments when you realize things have changed.
2: So at its heart, this book is all about overcoming dilemmas. Are you ready to help our listeners work through some of so their dilemmas? I am so
1: ready. I'm ready.
2: All right. Our first question comes from Kim in Chicago. Kim asks, should I tell a friend that he is bad at Twitter?
0: That's it. Wow. Well, <laughs> um, no description of what that means.
1: Okay. So first of all, I believe Kim has already told us something about herself. She is clearly... Under 40, because this is one of those signs that I write about in the book of knowing that you're getting to be, you know, close to 50. Is if you say the Twitter or the <laughs> Facebook. So, Kim, we, we've got your number. I would have By the to way, say didn't yes.
0: Facebook start uh-huh. as the Facebook. Wasn't it originally called the Facebook?
1: Yes, but no one says the Facebook but my parents. Yeah, were
0: you around
2: when it started, Rico? I wasn't. <laughs> I had yeah. not oh, yet no. been born. Absolutely. You're right, Brendan. You
1: know, I mean, we, we, we're getting a picture of who she is. And see, I actually think you don't. Need to tell your friend. I think you know when you're bad at Twitter. Oh, really? You're just rubbing it in. Well, like you know what I'm saying. Hold on,
2: Annabelle. Because Twitter, you're just broadcasting, and then you're you're going about your day. And oh, for that, all you know, really,
1: no, you're really in some denial here. Okay, no, you're not just broadcasting. Then you're checking all day long to see if <laughs> anyone retweeted you. Did anyone favorite mm. you? You know, one of mm. the saddest things in life. The thrill you get from being favorited <laughs> on a Twitter. Like this is what it's come to. Like I, and I'm that person. Like my. <sighs> Dopamine system is now, it used to be like big things. Oh, I'm going to star yeah. on a TV show. Now I'm like, I got favorited on
0: Twitter. <laughs> but what do we say to Kim, though? So Kim's the, no, the advice is say nothing?
1: No, no, don't say anything. Just unfollow him. Oh, that'll say more oh. than anything else. It yeah, hurts. You go. And then
0: Twitter about it in case they didn't see you it. You
1: don't Twitter about it. You you tweet <laughs> oh my god now you're like and then do the twitter it's Uh-oh. rubbing off on Uh-oh. me what are you
2: doing? you're rubbing off on rico he just aged 20 years what's happening just, to a, my hands you know
1: what? It's like a contact <laughs> high it's a like contact age I, i'm so sorry i'm really sorry about this that. is a I'm terrible sorry. day all right
0: all right here's something from because we are nothing if not ironic on uh-huh. this show somebody called bow tie aficionado who wrote to us via tw- the Twitter mm. at Bowtie Officio? Yes.
2: Is this an advertisement tie-in?
0: Because we're public radio. But I guess the question's legitimate. Bowtie writes: How can I politely tell my friends who wear pre-tied bow ties to learn to tie their own?
1: I think it's interesting that Bowtie Aficionado has managed to time travel from the past into the future and get a Twitter account because I didn't even know people knew how to tie bow ties. Okay, Bowtie Aficionado, man, get a life. I'm sorry, but this is like, I'm worried about this guy. Does he stop children on the street and say, no Velcro on shoes? You must tie those sneakers. I mean, it's not good. It's all bad. Don't do it. And consider changing your Twitter handle. Handle too. I think <laughs> wow. how many followers. But how many can you attract? I mean, you know. Yeah,
0: I also think that it's, it's like artisanal bow ties. ties. How many people are wearing bow ties that you want to now get down yeah. on the few people that oh. are bothering to wear something I, like a bow tie? I know, exactly. in a
1: way, like you should. Kinda, you should like, use that
2: as a starting point to talk to them about you know how much more beautiful their tie could be if it was not pre-tied. What is he
1: going to start saying, people? Now, don't wear your later hosen <laughs> below the knee. Wear it above <laughs> the knee when you're wearing. It's those, like
2: when wearing a powdered wig.
1: I'd say, curly
0: yourself wait sock
1: suspenders how about that does he wear sock suspenders where does it end (laughs) bow tie aficionado i'm worried so
0: bow tie aficionado just uh, you know enjoy the fact that someone's wearing a bow tie (laughs) and go from there yes and annabelle Gerwich, incredibly we are out of time thank you so much for telling our audience in some cases very adamantly how to behave
2: oh you're welcome
0: did you tie that bow tie yourself annabelle
1: (laughs) i don't even know how to tie a regular tie who knows these (laughs) things
2: Comic, actor, and author Annabelle Gerwich, Her new book is called
0: I See You Made an Effort, Compliments, Indignities, and Survival Stories from the Edge of 50. And folks, we urge you to make an effort to send in your etiquette questions. We will find someone who is more or less qualified to answer them. Email all queries via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
1: to eavesdrop.
0: Rebecca Mead is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her new book just came out and it's about books and her obsession with one in particular. Today we overhear her tell us about it and read an excerpt.
9: Hi, I'm Rebecca Mead and I'm the author of My Life in Middlemarch. My book combines biography of George Eliot, the Victorian novelist, criticism of her greatest work, Middlemarch, and memoir of my life reading that book, which I first read when I was 17 years old and have read many times since. I identified very strongly with the heroine Dorothea Brooke, a young woman in a provincial town yearning for a more significant life, as was I. And as I grew older, I read it about every five years. And every time I went back to it, my emotional response changed. I'm going to read a passage from the beginning of the book, which describes a visit I made to the New York Public Library to look at a notebook that had belonged to George Eliot. I had a surprisingly intimate encounter with George Eliot and her world and the way in which it connected to my world. I opened to the first page, and as I did so, I became vaguely aware of a slight scent in the air that was at once out of place and oddly familiar, the smell of a spent hearth, For a moment I wondered if there could be a fireplace in the adjoining room, but then it dawned on me that the smell was coming from the notebook itself. Perhaps, I quickly said to myself, one of the notebook's previous owners had shelved it near a fireplace. Perhaps it was just the aging pages decaying. Still, there the smell was, and maybe, the book inscribed by George Eliot's hand and containing a record of her thought and mind had also been imbued with a trace of her material world and could lead me back there. I closed the notebook, took one more look around the reading room. In a corner stood a small desk that had once belonged to Charles Dickens, an early admirer of the mysterious new author who went by the pseudonym of George Eliot. After the publication of her first novel, Adam Bede, Dickens wrote to her in person. He said, Adam Bede has taken its place among the actual experiences and endurances of my life. I thought about his wildly popular American tours, excursions into celebrity that were the sort of thing Elliot avoided completely. Though in 1872, an acquaintance from New England urged her to visit. She declined, writing, Boston, I always imagined to be a delightful place to go straight to and come straight back from. But the Atlantic is too wide for that. I've crossed the wide Atlantic many times and it never gets any easier. In my early 20s, I went home to visit my parents once a year or so, and they would come to see me. In my 30s, I would stop off for a day or two in England en route to or from an assignment somewhere more extraordinary, Paris, Mumbai, Tokyo, feeling jet-lagged and glamorous. As my parents became elderly, I went back more often for walks with my mother that would be filled with accounts of doctor's visits and dinners at which my father would pour Rioja with an increasingly shaky hand. When I first left England as a young woman, I didn't consider that there would be a finite and unknowable number of times I would return. Eventually though, each goodbye came to be freighted with the possibility that it might be the last. I left Dickens's desk, walked through the library's marble corridors and emerged on 42nd Street. I turned into Bryant Park and claimed a chair on a gravel path under one of the towering London plane trees, a species named for the city of my birth growing in the city I had chosen. I thought about Eliot's notebook and of what Dickens had identified the strange potency of a great book, the way a book can insert itself into a reader's own history until it's hard to know what one will be without it. It might lead us back to the library in midlife. Looking for something that eluded us before.
0: Rebecca Mead reading from her new book, My Life in Middle March, and you are listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
2: And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the
0: food. And, Brendan, one of the first food stories we did on this show some time ago was about gourmet donuts. That's Do right. That's back when we were like, bacon in a donut? <laughs> That's insane. Cra- crazy. That had... Arrow through the head. Of course, uh, bacon is (laughs) as common as sprinkles now, at donut joints. Basically. But lately, there's been another donut wave pushing the donut envelope even further. Oh, wait a second.
2: Envelopes made of donuts. Mm. Now that
0: is a good idea. With (laughs) a letter made of strawberry jam. Stuff it with cream. (laughs) Market that. So last week, a place opened in L.A. It's called Glazed Donut Bistro. They have a crazy menu of sweet and savory donuts. They're served with dipping sauces and booze. So to taste this stuff and to learn a bit about donuts, I talked to chef Gina Laura. She told me first about how she approached the sweet side of the menu.
8: So taking desserts that are common favorites and turning it into the donut. Like for instance, the tres leches cake we turned into a donut and you know, we turned a drink, the blackberry mojito into a donut. So it's just the challenge of taking something so simple and turning it into something like over the top.
0: I like I was looking at your menu and I noticed that it's divided into cake and yeast raised donuts. And I think, almost instinctually, I know the difference between those two things. Like i probably encountered them my whole life, but tell me what the difference is between those two. Uh,
8: a cake donut is, has a higher sugar percentage and is much more dense. The nice thing about the cake donut is we can take lots of different ingredients and infuse it into the batter. Like we have these cinnamon chips that we're going to be putting into vanilla and make like a cinnamon crumb. It's almost endless. If I had it my way, I'd be making new donuts all the time. But Harry tries to keep me reeled in because sometimes I go a little bit nuts.
0: Harry, of course, is the owner of this place. What is, if you had limitless time, money, and energy, what would be your king donut?
8: Oh, that's hard. I don't know. There's so many. Oh, actually, we were, (laughs) for Valentine's, I said, hey, let's get some gold leaf. And I go, no, it's $250 a thing. No, we're not doing that. We'll go with gold dust, which we never got around to, but maybe next time.
0: So you've got the cake donut on the one hand and then and the, the yeast.
8: yeast the yeast raise is much more lean, so less fat, less sugar, uh, and it's leavened with, yeast, so it's much more fluffy. has a different flavor, you know, it has that fermented flavor from the process.
0: That tends to be the one I, I see when you do like a jelly donut or yes. something, it has a filling.
8: Those are yeast rays, they're light, they have a pocket in the center, you can fill
0: them. All right, the thing that really drew, drew me to this place is the savory donuts that you have. You are taking it to a totally different place. Oh my God, so here is one of them. I ordered the shrimp donut, and it's got like a cream sauce on it.
8: This is our take of the, on the lobster roll, so we kind of did a little bit of a mayo and sour cream and lemon juice and pickles and capers and herbs, and then the, what's on top is a, like a sriracha sauce.
0: What happened in your mind that you were like, let's make a lobster roll donut? Honestly,
8: I'll tell you what happened in my mind. We had to have some... Items on the menu that could be sold with beer and wine. So I figured, you know, if I can make a ba- maple bacon donut, I can certainly make a shrimp roll. I can make pulled pork sliders with using the same dough.
0: Now, before I dig into this, that was the other thing that's interesting. You pair donuts with beer and wine. We have some good For, beer and wine too. And you have donuts with alcohol in them. Yes,
8: we do this really cool thing with these pipettes. Like, I don't know if you've ever um, put eye drops in your eyes or the little squeezers. So we fill those with alcohol and we use them for the mojito donuts and for different donuts. You know, like, let's say it's an orange chocolate donut. We may put um, Grand Marnier in the pipette and they squeeze it in.
0: So it's not just a mojito flavor. You actually have booze in these
8: donuts. Yeah, hell yeah. Donuts for (laughs) grownups.
0: For real. All right. Well, let me, so I'm looking at this shrimp roll donut. What would you pair that with?
8: Oh, I think I would pair that with a nice dry white wine, but I could drink beer with that too.
0: It's already... I mean, the thing that makes it hard for me to understand is that it's like donuts already seem so heavy to me that putting alcohol on top of it seems like... These
8: donuts are really light. Those are yeast rays. They're light. So I don't think you're going to see an issue with it when you take a bite of
0: that. It does really look like a lobster roll. I guess it's a cruller-like shape, the donut. It's
8: a long john. That's what it is.
0: A long john.
8: <laughs> Very mildly sweet. That's why we can pair it with savory ingredients.
0: And then sort of on top, you've got these chunks of shrimp.
8: We made the chunks of shrimp a little bit bigger, so it looks sexier.
0: <laughs> it's definitely, it's both sexy and, and a little scary because I'm so unused to seeing creamy <laughs> things on, on top of the donut. All right, here we go wow that makes a ton of sense in my mouth
8: good if it makes a ton of sense in your mouth then we're on the right track
0: the thing that's really interesting about this actually is that the donut is not as sort of forward as i would expect it to be it's more like a blank canvas
8: the donut is the vessel it is like the blank canvas that you are adding things to and putting things on so that's why the yeast donut is so great because it's so neutral it's not too sweet not too salty and so you can really do anything with it
0: yeah it's almost like just a, a kind of especially rich uh roll yeah,
8: exactly it is a kind of a lean roll dough actually you could bake it probably and make a, you know like a sandwich roll out of it
0: i for some reason my head leaps to like next thanksgiving can you imagine doing like you know a turkey <laughs> donut with gravy
8: definitely a turkey stuffing and cranberry sauce inside the dough like the monte cristo works
0: we'll be back in a year
8: i'll be waiting
0: And Brendan, I also tried the following at Glazed Donut Bistro. You're
2: about to make me jealous, aren't you?
0: I am. Fried chicken stuffed in a beignet-style donut with a side of maple syrup spiked with vinegar. Monte Cristo donut with a blueberry jam oh. on the side.
2: Wow, was there one stuffed with serious journalism in it? Because <laughs> that was, I think you missed that one. That was absent. Oh, yeah. It was just plenty of gluttony. Picked up on that. All right, people, up next we'll speak to the maker of one of the year's most provocative Oscar contenders, when The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, food, culture, and humor worth talking about. I'm
0: Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we hear a song called High Five that might make you high five. Mm. And in a few minutes, documentarian Joshua Oppenheimer tells us about his magnum opus. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor.
2: Yes, and this week, it's musician Stephen Malkmus, He's best known for leading Pavement, mm. the signature band of the 90s indie rock scene. Back then, his collegiate look, cool demeanor, and literate free verse lyrics made him a darling to some, especially the music press. Yep. Since Pavement folded back in 2000, he's made six albums, solo or with his band The Jicks. The latest is called Wig Out at Jagbags." <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> yeah. And the album's so varied, it's part prog rock, part pop ballads, mm. that I asked him to help me choose a track with which to start the interview. I suggested one called Houston Hades.
10: Yeah, that sounds good. That has a little anarchy at the start of it, and yeah. then it settles into a populist groove. I could see you falling in love. Every day, people need love. With all their better hats, do the math. Everybody needs it long enough to let it go. Gun loggers now you gotta have their babies No this town it's
7: so in press it from a distance listen while I'm talking to you
2: I have a question about the end of that song the Turn it away turn it mm-hmm. that part how does that part of a song evolve? Because it doesn't, you know, I don't see someone sitting on their couch adding that ender. Is that something that takes happens in practice? Yeah,
10: it just happened a cherry on top at the end. I was trying to sing a little like Robert Smith, like imagining if Robert Smith from The Cure was in the Rolling Stones or something. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> but he's singing about tearaway jerseys, which kind of incongruous image. Yeah, I imagine, yeah, Texas Longhorns in the 70s with their <laughs> Tear away jerseys and stuff. Uh,
2: what a window into your brain, Robert Smith and the Texas Longhorns.
10: Yeah, but you know that the gothic uh, stylings of Robert Smith are really popular with suburban uh, Dallas teenagers in the 80s. Mm. So That's you never know. <laughs>
2: Who is your ideal audience for this album?
10: Um, the audience sort of picks itself. I mean, we just want an audience. You know, obviously <laughs> one that's not like, you know, fascist. You want
2: good people to listen to your music?
10: Yeah, a mix of male, female, um, all demographics would be fine. You know, except those that I stipulated are not welcome.
2: (laughs) But when you're writing songs, does that help focus your mind sometimes to like who who the audience is, or is that just not even part of the
10: equation? I don't know. You know, I just I want things to be catchy in my mind and attainable with my levels of talent. Mm
2: -hmm. So you know, I
10: try to keep (laughs) grounded that way.
2: You have two daughters now, and I've Mm -hmm. read in several interviews you talk about their love of pop. Like Lord, Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. You said that uh, Daft Punk was getting a lot of play in your house recently. Do you ever think about writing a, a song like that, just like a pure radio-friendly?
10: I mean, I take influence from those people occasionally yeah. in my lyrics and stuff. I'll throw in something kind of universal or written with uh, an eye towards not what I really think, but like what the song should will trigger in people. Can you give me an example of that? Um well there's like we grew up listening to the music from the best decade ever. We grew up listening to the music from the best decade ever. Talking about the ADDs. we grew up It's just kinda I could see Katy Perry writing this. Kinda like Teenage Dream. But I, I'm having good success with this kind of low-stakes personal thing that we're doing, and <laughs> yeah. I like that. So,
2: When was the moment you realized that you were going to be a musician your whole life?
10: Well, I think when uh, we made a record in Pavement called Slanted and Enchanted, and then Crooked Rain was the second one. And those made me feel pretty confident that I could at least exist in a level that I was used to, which was, I don't know... Like Maxwell's, perhaps, you know, there was a venue in in Hoboken, New Jersey that was kind of like a small club, and, you know, those were my aspirations, to be able to play there. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure I was going to be able to play Maxwell's for like eight years (laughs) at at that point.
2: (laughs) And Um, what was your plan going to be after that eight years?
10: Maybe we would graduate to Irving Plaza or something, (laughs) but uh, if it didn't happen, I would just reassess.
2: At the time, you were a security guard at the Whitney Museum, um, and you're kind of a preppy group. I think you once described pavement as nice suburban kids. H- how did your parents feel about your career choice?
10: Well, you know, I went to university. They paid for it. So that was maybe something that I was supposed to uh, parlay mm-hmm. into, into a middle-class life like theirs. Yeah, And uh, I'm sure they wouldn't have thought of uh, music as making that happen. I mean, we were from Los Angeles. There's a lot of entertainment people, but we were on the Ronald Reagan side of the street, Um, (laughs) even though he was an entertainer. Yeah. You know, he was more of an Orange County Republican. Yeah. That was the archetype, not the uh, Jack Nicholson or or, uh, Steve McQueen or something. (laughs) All right. Well, we have two standard questions we ask our guests, be they
2: Reaganites or Nicholsonites. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews?
10: it's uh, with music people ask you um what came first the uh words or the music and uh you know for 99% of us it's always the music and it's kind of obvious that uh, <laughs> in music that you need the music first so the words can
2: actually fit in the song All right, so the second thing we ask of our guests is tell us something we don't know, and this can be either a personal thing that you haven't shared in interviews before, or it could be an interesting piece of trivia about the world.
10: Hmm. This isn't even going to be particularly interesting, but uh, my daughter, one of her um, friends, her name's Helena, and uh, her mom's name's Britta, and you don't know that. (laughs) Um, Also, she she grew up in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. The first concert she went to... Britta. Was this uh is Britta? Not Britta yeah, yeah, it was Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Skank and Pickle. So oh. I don't think anyone knows that. And when I was looking on my notes on my iPhone, I had when I saw you were going to ask that question, I I had written Skank and Pickle, <laughs> just what, to remember that. What is that. Skank and Pickle? Skank and Pickle's a ska band, also. Okay. Um, like Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and I just kind of wanted to remember Skank and Pickle. Certainly an obscure
2: fact so your daughters are 10 and seven so I imagine you talk to their friends parents a lot when you're you know waiting to pick them up from school and stuff that's true <laughs> that's part
10: of it you know I mean that's reality
2: do you find that their friends parents are fans of your music um a couple
10: mm-hmm. you know not really I know there's some black crows fans the important
2: thing is do their do your kids know that they have a cool dad yet
10: oh uh, they know yeah yeah they think I'm <laughs> a rock star you know but just they don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> they think anyone who plays in a band's a rock star, which yeah. is you know good for your ego, yeah. Suppose, or you might feel hollow, knowing that it's not true. Hey.
2: Stephen Malkmus, his latest album with his band The Jicks is called "Wig Out at Jag Bags, and full disclosure. I'm a recovering Pavement fan. Me too. Surprise. The full extent of my geekdom is in evidence in the longer version of our interview, where we talk about Lou Reed's thoughts on Pavement, the location of the town box elder, and whether Malkmus is
0: the Matlock of Indie Rock. Because the world needs to know. There are many powerful films about true life events up for Oscars this year, but the most groundbreaking may be among the least seen. It is called The Act of Killing, and it's up for Best Documentary. I guarantee you it is going to be required viewing in film schools if it isn't already. The director is Joshua Oppenheimer, and he's here to talk about it. And Joshua, it's an
11: honor. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we get to the methods you used that I think really make this movie especially unique, let's get to the background first. This is about several very notorious men in Indonesia. Tell our listeners who they are generally and and what they did.
11: Well, in 1965, there was a military coup in Indonesia where after the army took power, they went after every potential opponent of the new military dictatorship and accused them of being communists. And they rounded them up and handed them over to civilian death squads and had them executed. And the men who did this, the civilian death squad leaders who did this, have essentially been in power ever since. They've never been forced to admit what they've done was wrong. And so when you speak to them and ask them about what they did, rather than deny it, they boast about it. And to understand the nature of their boasting, why they're boasting, how they want to be seen, how they see themselves, and to expose the corrupt regime that they've built, I gave them the chance to dramatize what they've done
0: basically that you gave them the opportunity to make a film in which they reenacted their own mass killings where did you come up with that concept it is not the obvious way to portray these events
11: actually i began making this project in collaboration with a community of survivors of the 1965-66 genocide and they'd asked me to make a film with them about why they are afraid about what it's like for them to live with the perpetrators, the death squad leaders, still in positions of power around them. But when we started making that film, this was in 2003, the army found out what we were doing and would no longer let the survivors be in the movie. So Mm -hmm. the survivors themselves said, before you quit, try and film the perpetrators and see if they will say how they killed our relatives. And Mm -hmm. a little unsure if it was safe to approach the perpetrators at all, I did so, and to my horror found that every single one of them was boastful, but also taking me to the places where they killed and launching into spontaneous demonstrations of Mm. how they killed, complaining that they hadn't thought to bring along, for example, a machete or a weapon to use as a prop or a fellow death squad veteran to play a victim. And I started to propose to the perpetrators, look, Go ahead and show me what you've done in whatever way you wish. I will film your reenactments, but I will also film you and your fellow death squad veterans talking about what you want to show and what you don't want to show and your reasons for not showing things, exposing the nature of a regime built by victorious mass murderers. Mm.
0: One of these uh, perpetrators actually says something along the lines of the definition of a war crime is defined by the people who win the war.
11: That's right. And in a way, this is a film about what happens when killers win. Now, I didn't, the the, the perpetrators gradually start developing more and more elaborate uh, dramatizations of what they've done, inspired by their favorite Hollywood films. turned out the army had recruited their killers from the ranks of gangsters who were hanging out in movie theaters and had this, uh, and loved American movies. I actually
0: wanted to ask you about this. You gave them free reign to reenact their killings and depict themselves any way they wanted. What scene that they came up with kind of most surprised you?
11: I, it's a little hard to answer that question because every every scene was an, a step in a journey. That, you know, Anwar Congo, the main character in the act of killing, was the 41st perpetrator I filmed. And I lingered on him because the very first day I met him, he takes me to a rooftop demonstrates how he killed with wire because it was cleaner that way, and then starts to dance the cha-cha-cha in the place where he's killed hundreds of people. Yeah. But as grotesque and surreal as that is, his pain was also close to the surface. In that he says there, I'm a good dancer because I was going out drinking, taking drugs to forget what I've done. Yeah, right. And so I started to wonder, perhaps this boasting that I've spent two years filming isn't really a sign of pride. Perhaps it's a sign that these men know what they've done is wrong and are desperately trying to convince themselves otherwise. They're imposing this victor's history where they call themselves heroic so that they don't have to wake up every morning and be confronted in the mirror with an image of a mass murderer. With Anwar, I'm sure he's disturbed about what he's done, but he dares not say that because to say that would be to admit what he's done is wrong. So he proposes these embellishments that become ever more surreal.
0: Yeah, they came. They come up with scenes that are just odd, and one of them the most kind of thuggish and roly-poly of these gangsters. Dresses in drag, there's a scene that features a line of women dancing out of an enormous structure shaped like a fish. Where did those images come from?
11: The, the very surreal material where they're with the giant goldfish is one of two musical numbers that Anwar and his friend shot. For Anwar, it's it's a, it's an homage to Vincente Minelli Minnelli, to, to Hollywood musicals. Mm.
0: Spending time with these people, you tend to begin to empathize with them. I know watching the film, anytime they had a human moment and I kind of sympathized with them, my mind would just reel remembering I was watching Murderers and you were with them for months while making the film. How did you deal with that in your own mind?
11: I mean, years while making the film. Yeah. It was difficult. It was painful. It gave me nightmares. It's not, you know, when I, I made a decision early on that I would not make the leap from the true statement that these men have done something monstrous to the statement that these men are monsters. They're not monsters. They're human. And if we are concerned with trying to understand and therefore prevent how human beings do these things to each other, we have to start from the starting point that the perpetrators are human. And that meant, of course, opening myself up to Anwar as a a human being, being as honest as I could safely be, and allow him inside of me, as it were, and Mm -hmm. vice versa. And that... That, of course, made the whole journey much more painful and much more difficult. Do you consider him your friend? I wouldn't say we're friends, no, because I think we were each trying to work something out through the process together that was much bigger than our actual relationship. I'm trying to expose a regime of impunity on behalf of survivors and the human rights community. Mm. Anwar, for his part, I think was trying to deal with a lifetime of pain. So I can't say it's a friendship, but I think we have a great deal of care for each other. There's
0: kind of a sub-theme running through this film that's about film and the way it portrays violence. your subjects say they were directly inspired by Hollywood gangster films. Anwar, the main character talks about coming out of a movie theater and going directly across the street and killing people and he says he did it happily. is the message here because it's it could be a dangerous one th- that movies really desensitize people to violence. Do you believe that
11: uh, the, the example you gave of Anwar walking out of a cinema and saying he was able to kill happily comes from a time where he he describes walking out of an Elvis Presley musical. Well, Elvis Presley musicals are not violent, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they don't desensitize us to violence. But what they do is allow us to escape into fantasy. And I think the film is really about the consequences of the stories we tell ourselves, the lies we tell ourselves, to justify our actions. Joshua Oppenheimer.
0: His Oscar-nominated documentary is called The Act of Killing. And he says in Indonesia, where he made the film available to watch online free of charge, by the way, it's actually changing the way they talk about their country's past. And it's an absolutely stunning film. Yes, wrenching, but worth it. And folks, that is the Dinner Party download for this week. Thank you for coming over. Be careful as you drive home.
2: Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Our interns are James Delahoussi and Esther Mania. Engineering assistance was provided by Chris Clark and Brendan Willard. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney.
0: And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Angel Olson received a Best New Music designation from
2: Pitchfork for her new album Burn Your Fire for No Witness. Here's a track from it called High Five.
0: Bon appétit. I feel- That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. and And I'm
9: Britta. And in 1987, my favorite dish was chicken salad. Wow. Another thing we did not know.